Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 123, Treasure of the Caribbean, the Legend of Governor's Gold. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. This week, we're talking about William Phipps. He was the first royal governor of Massachusetts under the charter of William and Mary. As governor, he would implement the notorious court of Oyer and Terminer that led to the executions of 20 innocent people during the Salem witch hysteria. But long before he was a royal governor, he was a poor shepherd boy in rural Maine. As a young man, he dreamed of Spanish gold, and he eventually made that dream a reality with little more than ambition and determination, leading one of the most amazing treasure hunts in history. But before we talk about the governor's gold, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is another podcast. I've been saving this one, but I think it's the perfect time to share it. Last week's episode of the American Revolution podcast covered the evacuation of Boston in March of 1776, which means that they'll probably move on to other areas soon. But in the show's run up to this point, I've counted at least 30 episodes primarily about events in and around Boston. Host Michael Troy tells the story of the revolution in a way that's very engaging and easy to follow, while at the same time being very thorough. He's so thorough, in fact, that his podcast about the American Revolution doesn't get to Paul Revere's ride and the battles at Lexington and Concord until episodes 53 to 56. That's right, there are over 50 episodes before the first shots of the war ring out. Instead of jumping straight into battlefield glory, Troy spent a year laying the groundwork, explaining what the status quo for the American colonists, the British, French, Spanish, and Native American populations in North America was like in the 1750s. Then he did a long series on the French and Indian War, introducing the people, places, and events that would eventually come to bear on our revolution. Then, finally, he covered the growing American crisis in the 1760s and early 1770s. Along the way, he produced episodes on the Stamp Act riots and repeal, John Hancock's ship Liberty, the occupation of Boston, the massacre, the Tea Party, and dozens more events, large and small, that led up to the outbreak of war. Over the past few months, he's produced shows about the large battles and small skirmishes around Boston, from Bunker Hill to Chelsea Creek. And in the past weeks, he explained how Washington's forces managed to fortify Dorchester Heights in a single night, and why that forced the British to give up their occupation of Boston. It's a great show, and I'm sure the folks who wish we would spend more time on Boston's revolutionary-era history will be happy with the long run of Boston-centric episodes that are available. You can find the American Revolution podcast on Apple Podcasts or on whatever app you're using to listen to us right now. Or just go to amrevpodcast.com. And for our upcoming event this week, we have another revolutionary era callback. After the Boston Massacre on March 5th, 1770, the town of Boston commemorated the event with a public oration at Old South Meeting House each year. Speakers extolled liberty and excoriated the ministerial army that had committed the atrocity. Crowds were often enthusiastic, but usually contained some number of Tories or even British regulars who might interrupt or heckle the speaker. It was a high form of public performance, and delivering the massacre oration was an honor. Twice it was delivered by our favorite patriot, Joseph Warren, and once each by James Lovell, John Hancock, and Benjamin Church— who would later betray the Patriot cause. The honor was offered to John Adams in 1773, but he felt that after successfully defending the soldiers in court, he should not appear to argue both sides of the issue. From his orations, 
It's easy to see what a gifted writer and speaker Joseph Warren was. Even almost 250 years later, his 1772 oration for the anniversary of the massacre still stirs the blood. The voice of your father's blood cries to you from the ground. My sons scorn to be slaves. In vain we met the frowns of tyrants. In vain we crossed the boisterous ocean, found a new world, and prepared it for the happy residence of liberty. In vain we toiled. In vain we fought. In vain we bled. If you, our offspring, want valor to repel the assaults of her invaders, stain not the glory of your worthy ancestors, but like them, resolve never to part with your birthright. Be wise in your deliberations, and determine in your exertions for the preservation of your liberties. Follow not the dictates of passion, but enlist yourselves under the sacred banner of reason. Use every method in your power to secure your rights. At least prevent the curses of posterity from being heaped upon your memories. If you, with united zeal and fortitude, oppose the torrent of oppression, if you feel the true fire of patriotism burning in your breasts, if you, from your souls, despise the most gaudy dress that slavery can wear, if you really prefer the lonely cottage blessed with liberty to gilded palaces surrounded with the ensigns of slavery, you may have the fullest assurance that tyranny, with her accursed train, will hide their hideous heads in confusion, shame, and despair. If you perform your part, you must have the strongest confidence that the same Almighty Being who protected your pious and venerable forefathers, who enabled them to turn a barren wilderness into a fruitful field, who so often made bare his arms for their salvation, will still be mindful of you, their offspring. After the fifth anniversary had passed, war broke out in Massachusetts. The anniversary in 1776 came and went while the British regulars were hastily loading everything they could carry onto ships for their impending evacuation of Boston. With the troops gone and the new nation ensnared in a war for an uncertain future, Bostonians didn't celebrate the massacre anniversary with orations again after 1775. However, Old South Meeting House has recently revived this tradition. 2019 will mark the fifth year of their Speak Out Boston Massacre Anniversary event. Here's how their website describes it. Each year from 1772 to 1775, massive gatherings of men, women, and children were held here at Old South Meeting House to commemorate the anniversary of the Boston Massacre with rousing speeches by John Hancock, Benjamin Church, and Dr. Joseph Warren. Join us to hear excerpts of these speeches performed by an intergenerational group in the same hall where the orations took place 240 years ago. This year's program will include excerpts from the Crispus Attucks Memorials delivered in 1858 by William Cooper Nell and Dr. John Sweat Rock, which zeroed in on the institution of slavery in relation to the rhetoric of liberty. Audience members will have the option to read selected excerpts, Prizes will be awarded to the most rousing orators in youth and adult categories. The event is free and open to the public, but registration is required. We'll have a link in this week's show notes. Before we carry on with the show, we just want to remind you about our Patreon campaign. Much as we love researching and writing a story to share with you each week, there's more to podcasting than just digging up sources and talking into a microphone. There are also details like finding a host for our podcast feed, creating a website and keeping it secure, 
and using online processing tools to help our show sound better. Unfortunately, all those things cost money. We'd like to thank listeners William and Jim, who just made one-time donations. If you'd like to help us offset our costs and break even over the long term, please consider supporting us on Patreon for as little as $2 a month. You'll get special rewards at the $2, $5, and $10 monthly levels, and you'll help us deliver a high-quality show. Just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory, or go to hubhistory.com and click on the Support Us link. And now it's time for this week's main topic. On June 1st, 1688, William Phipps stepped onto a dock in Boston, his adopted hometown, for the first time in over four years. Reverend Samuel Sewell's diary entry for the day recorded, We heard that Sir William came in his penance from Portsmouth this day. Many of the town gone to compliment him. The brief note only begins to hint at how much had changed for Phipps in those four years. First of all, when he had left Boston in 1684, he was a skillful shipwright. He was well-respected, but not such a notable personality that the whole town of Boston would turn out to greet him on his arrival. But during his time away, William Phipps, who was now just 38 years old, had an incredible run of good luck. Now as he returned, he found himself in possession of the new honorific Sir William, being only the second man in town after the royal governor to be granted a knighthood. He also found himself in possession of an enormous new fortune. Some modern observers estimate that Sir William Phipps was now the wealthiest man in British North America. Along with his title and fortune, Sir William also had a new job. King James II had appointed him as the Provost Marshal General of the Dominion of New England. The position of Provost Marshal General was essentially the Chief Sheriff. And as we've discussed on past podcasts, the Dominion of New England was a crown-controlled colony created by King Charles II. He had the Charter of Massachusetts Bay Colony and the other New England colonies revoked, then centralized their government under an increasingly heavy-handed royal governor. Since December of 1686, that heavy-handed royal governor had been Sir Edmund Andros, the only other knight in town. Despite having been knighted by Sir Edmund's ally, King James, and despite having personally delivered Edward Randolph, who revoked the colony's charter to Boston on an earlier voyage, Sir William didn't seem to get along with Andros very well. Instead of teaming up with the royal governor, Phipps joined forces with the powerful Mather family, who were scheming to get the colony's charter reinstated. But who was this William Phipps? and what had happened during his long absence from Boston. Samuel Sewell's diary records how Phipps was praised during Harvard's July 4th commencement ceremonies. Mr. William Hubbard compared Sir William in his oration to Jason fetching the Golden Fleece. What had happened on that voyage to earn him such an enormous fortune and such lofty praise? Who was this man whom Cotton Mather described as made by God of heaven as great a blessing to New England as that country could have had. Writing in a 1928 edition of the New England Quarterly, Viola Barnes described what William Phipps was like. He was an inveterate wire puller and a bold self-advertiser. The man who could impress three kings such as Charles II, James II, and William III with his ability was no common fellow. It was his good fortune to live in a period where get-rich-quick schemes appealed to even monarchs, 
when an impoverished aristocracy gladly opened its doors to the lucky man who found the pot at the rainbow's end. When the New England theocracy cracked and underdogs pushed through to the top. One of the chapters in Cotton Mather's masterwork, Magnalia Christi Americana, is devoted to William Phipps' life story, and it illustrates just what an underdog he was. Mather says that he was born in 1651 at a despicable plantation on the river of Kennebec at almost the furthest village of the eastern settlement of New England. The despicable plantation was Nequasset, which lay in the remote eastern counties of Massachusetts Bay Colony, near the coast about 30 miles from today's Augusta, Maine. When William was six years old, his father, the gunsmith John Phipps, died, and his mother Mary soon remarried. Between her two husbands, she eventually gave birth to 26 children, though it's not clear how many survived childhood. They were a large family in a small remote town with little in the way of resources. William worked hard from a very young age. When he was not much older than six, he began helping his mother with the never-ending chores that made up household labor in those days. At the age of 14, he began tending the family's large flock of sheep and continued as a shepherd until he was 18 years old. He received no formal education and wouldn't learn to read and write until well into adulthood. When William was 18, he entered into a four-year contract as an apprentice to a ship's carpenter. He worked at the firm of Clark and Lake, which was close enough to the family home to let him sleep in his own bed throughout the term of his contract. There are few records of this time, but from his later work, it's clear that Phipps quickly mastered the trade. A 1941 biography says that he became an acknowledged expert on the types and purposes of woods. His knowledge of draft and dead rise, the design of run, quarters, and transom was fairly uncanny, even while he sat an apprentice stool. An 1847 biography makes a point of noting, in one respect, however, he was an example to all succeeding apprentices. He did not rudely break his bonds and desert his master, but served his time out to the end. When that time did come to an end in 1673, he decided that it was finally time to leave his mother and the family cabin in Nequasset. Cotton Mather says, He then betook himself 150 miles further afield, even to Boston, the chief town of New England, which being a place of the most business and resort in those parts of the world, he expected there more commodiously to pursue the space majorum and meliorum hopes which had inspired him. Now at home in our fair city, Phipps, then 22, threw himself into his work. He made coasting vessels and small ships on commission, and occasionally he took one of the vessels he had built for a trading run down to the Caribbean, slowly and surely building his net worth and his bona fides. Somewhere along the way, he caught the eye of Mary Spencer Hull, a middle-class widow about four years older than our William. Within a year, they were married. Mary and William made their primary home in Boston, but in 1675, William started into business for himself. He built out a sawmill and shipyard at Merry Meeting Bay near Bath, Maine. Very quickly, he had established a good reputation by making solid shallops and sloops to carry firewood, beaver pelts, and other trading goods from Maine to the port of Boston. As his business grew, he contracted to build a trading vessel for a group of Boston investors in 1676. When the vessel was ready to launch, he put together a large cargo of Maine lumber that he would load on the ship and take with him when he delivered it to its new owners in Boston. Thus, he would add the cargo profit to the sale price of the boat. Fate had other ideas, as King Philip's war spread north to Maine. 
In August of 1676, a large party of Wabanakis started an offensive that would eventually lead most English colonists to abandon the main coast and fall back to Salem until the war was over. In a matter of days, they raided Falmouth, then Woolwich, and finally a trading post operated by William Phipps's old employers, Clark and Lake. Then it was William's turn, as Cotton Mather, in the vernacular of the time, recounted in the Magnalia Christi Americana. But just as the ship was hardly finished, the barbarous Indians on that river broke forth into an open and cruel war upon the English, and the miserable people, surprised by so sudden a storm of blood, had no refuge from the infidels but the ship now finishing in the harbor. Whereupon he left his intended lading behind him, and instead thereof carried with him his old neighbors and their families, free of all charges, to Boston. His sawmill and lumberyard were burned to the ground, and the money he had invested in a cargo of lumber was a total loss. However, he became something of an overnight folk hero, for volunteering to save his neighbors at the cost of his own livelihood. After this setback, Phipps turned again to building ships in Boston to begin growing the family fortune yet again. He spent the next six years or so toiling in relative obscurity, but he must have been dreaming about riches and how to lay his hands on them. Enoch Pond's 1847 dual biography of Increase Mather and William Phipps comments on how common that frame of mind was in this time and place. The period in our country's history of which we now speak was marked with some striking peculiarities. Men's minds were occupied with golden dreams, and not a few were rushing upon untried and absurd methods of procuring wealth. The success of the Spaniards and their mining operations led many to believe that the soil of New England covered vast quantities of gold and silver, and mining rods and other strange expedients were resorted to, to discover, if possible, the hidden treasure. Along with mining, piracy was thought of as a shortcut to riches, as was the practice of digging for buried pirate treasure. Phipps avoided the temptation of all these paths, and yet he did become obsessed with a get-rich-quick scheme involving gold. As a shipbuilder and occasional captain, he spent a lot of time on the docks listening to the tall tales of the seagoing men who came and went from the port of Boston. By this time, the Spanish had been extracting wealth from their vast southern empire for nearly two centuries. And over that time, storms, pirates, and uncharted shoals had taken their fair share of Spanish treasure ships. The docks of any English port were always alive with stories of untold riches just lying on the seafloor, ripe for the taking. Sometime in 1682, William Phipps believed that he had heard a tall tale with enough of a kernel of truth to act on. Before long, he fitted out a ship of his own design, called the Resolution, for a treasure hunt, and he cruised for a new Providence island in the Bahamas. This is another chapter in Sir William's life that's not well documented, but all accounts say that he was actually able to find the wreck he was looking for. It actually was a treasure ship, just lying there on the reef near New Providence waiting for him. Unfortunately, it had been lying there waiting for quite some time, and he wasn't the first adventurer to find it. His crew landed just enough Spanish gold to pay 54 pounds to each shareholder who had financed the trip, leaving Phipps with scarcely enough to pay for a trip to England. 
So instead of turning for home when he had exhausted the remains of the treasure ship, he turned toward the faraway mother country that he had never seen. Arriving in London, he somehow managed to talk himself into Whitehall Palace, and eventually into an audience with King Charles II. Armed with little more than a few Spanish pieces of eight, a tall tale about having learned the art of treasure diving in India, a place he had never been to, to be clear, and boundless self-confidence, he convinced the king to fit him out for another treasure hunt in the Caribbean. The normal royal prerogative gave the king the right to 10% of any treasure a British captain found. For an additional 25% of the haul, Charles agreed to appoint William Phipps as commander of a royal ship. If the voyage was successful, Charles would get 35% of the treasure. In return, Phipps got the Rose of Algiers, a 20-gun frigate that had been captured from the Algerians and required a crew of 95 and little else. Phipps would have to outfit the ship, paying for food, powder for the 20 guns, small arms and ammunition, and all the equipment they would need for treasure hunting. In what was perhaps a fateful decision, he enlisted a crew who'd agreed to being paid in shares of their eventual treasure rather than regular wages. In a 1932 issue of the New England Quarterly, Cyrus H. Carricker describes their agreement. Phipps and his crew agreed to a partnership enterprise. They signed articles of agreement whereby Phipps agreed to purchase out of his own pocket the instruments necessary for salvaging, while, on their part, the ship's company agreed to contribute equally to the purchase of their food and small arms with ammunition. The parties agreed to share the treasure according to their rank on the rows, after first deducting the crown's share. Phipps was to have a share for his person, another for his commission, and a third as a refund for the instruments he purchased. The mate was to have one-eighth of a share more than a foremast or common man, whose share would equal one of Phipps. Longtime listeners will recognize how similar that agreement is to the articles that pirate crews signed, governing their conduct aboard ship and dividing up the spoils they hoped to find. Perhaps it should be no surprise, then, that the crews seemed inclined to mutiny and piracy when they arrived in the Indies. Before they began searching for treasure in the West Indies, though, the crew accompanied Phipps on a strange visit to his hometown. They sailed for Boston for two purposes. Phipps needed to arrange a diving bell and experienced divers for their treasure hunt, and the king had charged him with delivering a visitor to Boston. During the crossing, the crew was nearly impossible for Phipps to control. From the minute they left port, they did things like stealing food and booze from the ship's stores. Since they had all contributed to provisioning the ship, they felt like partners, and they refused to be reprimanded. As Phipps put it, Men that paid for their own victuals and receive no wages will not be corrected for every small fault. When they arrived in Boston, Phipps immediately sailed the rows around the harbor, insisting that the captains of every other ship strike their colors or lower their flags in honor of the king's colors that the rows flew. If anyone hesitated or refused, he would fire a shot across their bow and then send a sailor on board to demand that the captain of the ship reimburse him for the cost of the wasted shot. The sources disagree about whether he was authorized to do this. Some state that even though the Rose was His Majesty's ship, it should not have acted as a man of war because it was being employed in a private enterprise. Others, however, say that there may have been tacit instructions from the king to put on a show of force on behalf of Phipps's passenger. That passenger was Edward Randolph, whom the king had sent to serve his writ of Quo Ranto, vacating the province's 1629 charter that had been issued by King Charles I. This immediately put Randolph, and by extension, Phipps, 
at odds with the people of Boston. As if that wasn't bad enough, the crew quickly earned a reputation for drinking and brawling on shore. Some sources say that rather than trying to restrain them, Phipps would sometimes join the fray on their side. He was far from diplomatic, being characterized by Cotton Mather as of an inclination, cutting rather more like a hatchet than a razor. Though the Rose was originally meant to stay in Boston for three weeks, their layover dragged out to ten weeks. Phipps spent time with his wife and acquaintances, and he was also busy laying in supplies for the cruise to the Bahamas. Along with all the normal provisions, he had to acquire a diving bell and skilled divers. During the hunt, he discovered that he was not the only ship on its way to hunt for wrecks in the Indies. Captain Warren of the ship Good Intent was also fitting out for a cruise to the Bahamas, perhaps even to the very same wreck. Phipps tried first to use his orders from the king to force Warren to call off his search. When that didn't work, he entered into a partnership with Warren. Together, the two ships would sail first to Jamaica to take on more supplies, then go in search of Spanish gold. The Good Intent and the Rose of Algiers sailed out of Boston Harbor in January. Before they reached the warm waters of the Caribbean, William Phipps had to fend off an attempt at mutiny. Cotton Mather recounts how the crew, growing weary of their unsuccessful enterprise, made a mutiny, wherein they approached him on the quarterdeck with drawn swords in their hands, and required him to join with them in running away with the ship to drive a trade of piracy on the South Seas. Captain Phipps, though he had not so much of a weapon as an ox goat or a jawbone in his hands, yet, like another Shamgar or Samson, with a most undaunted fortitude, he rushed in upon them, and with the blows of his bare hands, felled many of them, and quelled all the rest. After this attempted mutiny, the crew seems to have fallen back in line long enough to make an attempt to find some treasure. By early March, they were in Nassau, and began slowly combing the reefs and banks around the Bahamas in search of treasure. They soon learned that they were not alone. Many other ships, including at least two that had been dispatched by the king before he sent the Rose, were already searching the same area. The crew of the Rose found scraps of gold and silver, but nothing like the motherload they had signed on for. Soon, they grew frustrated and attempted a second mutiny. At one point, the ship was careened which means it was tipped up on its side in a tidal marsh on a small Spanish island to give access to the hull below the normal waterline. The ship was careened next to a large rock, and they rigged a long, wood-planked bridge from the rock to the sandy shore. Enough of the ship's stores were carried to the beach to last while they repaired the ship. A tent was rigged over the supplies, and then several of the ship's cannons were arranged around this makeshift camp as a defense against any passing Spanish. While work was proceeding on the hull, most of the crew wandered off into the woods, where they began hatching yet another mutinous plot. That evening, they vowed to turn on the captain and the eight or ten members of the crew who were loyal to him at 7 p.m. They would maroon this small band on the island and take the rose to the South Seas to ply the pirate round. At this point in the Magnalia, Cotton Mather exclaims, Will the reader now imagine that Captain Phipps, having advice of this plot but an hour and a half before it was to be put into execution, yet within two hours brought all these rogues down upon their knees to beg for their lives. But so it was. A ship's carpenter betrayed the plot to Phipps, and he and the loyal few quietly carried the cannons from the camp back on board and pulled up the bridge, while the would-be mutineers were still plotting in the forest. When the rebels finally emerged from the woods, ready to make their attack on the captain, they found the tables well and truly turned. 
They were stranded on shore with a limited cache of supplies, and all the guns of His Majesty's ship were trained on their position. They watched helplessly as Phipps readied the rose to make sail, finally throwing down their arms and begging to be taken back on board. Phipps relented, but kept the rebels under close watch until the ship reached Jamaica, where he put them off and hired a replacement crew. With these replacements, Phipps set course for London again. But before he crossed the Atlantic, he stopped briefly in Hispaniola. Though the records are sparse, many people believe that he met a survivor of an old Spanish shipwreck while he was in port, and the old Spaniard gave him the location of the wreck. It was to put together an expedition to this hopefully untouched wreck that Phipps now sailed for London. During his long absence, Charles II had died, and his brother, James II, had ascended to the throne. In the two years Phipps had been gone, he had only managed to recover small amounts of treasure. The king's 35% came to less than 500 pounds, while the Rose of Algiers had suffered over 700 pounds worth of wear and tear. Nevertheless, the mere fact that William Phipps had piloted the Rose to the Indies, resisted two mutinies, and returned with any gold at all had made him a prime candidate to captain another expedition. James was less interested in treasure hunting than his brother had been, but he allowed Phipps to work with the Duke of Albemarle. The Duke helped him put together a joint stock company and negotiated the exclusive rights to any wrecks found by the English in the Caribbean waters. By September of 1686, William Phipps was leaving England again. This time, he was in command of both a 200-ton, 22-gun frigate called the James and Mary and a 45-ton sloop he would use as a tender called the Henry of London. They carried enough trade goods to be able to pose as merchants instead of treasure hunters, and they went first to Porto Plata, part of the Dominican Republic today, to put the finishing touches on their scheme. Cotton Mather described some of the final preparations they made after arriving in November. Captain Phipps, arriving with a ship and a tender at Port de la Plata, made a stout canoe of a stately cotton tree, so large as to carry eight or ten oars, for the making of which periaga, as they call it, he did with the same industry that he did everything else, employ his own hand and ads, and endure no little hardship, lying abroad in the woods many nights together. Why did Captain Phipps need to add a dugout pirogue to his little fleet? It's more clear once you know where he planned to search on this voyage. Cyrus Carriker's 1932 article says, Somewhere on a reef in the area southeast of Turks Islands and north of Cape Francis, off the northeastern point of Hispaniola, lay a nation's ransom. Which reef? The old Spaniard was certain he knew, and so were others. Within this area lay immediately to the southeast of Turks Islands, about 18 leagues distant, Los Abreojos, called by the English Handkerchief Shoal and the Abraxas. Was it here? To the southeast of the Abraxas, about the same distance, lay Les Ambroches, which the English called Ambrosia Bank and North Riff. Perhaps the galleon had struck on this reef. Directly south of Ambrosia Bank, about midway to Hispaniola, lay an almost oval-shaped reef known as South Riff, and this was a possibility. Their destination would be Ambrosia Bank, today called Silver Bank. It's an enormous reef system between the island of Hispaniola and the Turks and Caicos Islands at the southern extent of the Bahamas. It's almost 650 square miles of coral heads, many of which are at the surface at low tide. 
Today, it's considered off-limits to large ships, and even small boats must use extreme caution, even when piloted by experienced locals. The large pirogue that William Phipps had carved with his own adze had a shallow draft, allowing a small crew to float above these coral heads in mere inches of water, giving Phipps' crew an advantage over any previous treasure hunters in the area. The James and Mary would anchor at the nearest deep water, and the tender Henry would slowly cruise a likely-looking reef. Then, when the water got too shallow, the pirogue would be dispatched with a half-dozen oarsmen and a few divers. When they saw something that looked man-made among the rocks and coral, the divers would go down to check it out. Viola Barnes' 1928 article describes how they went down with the aid of a simple diving device, doubtless of the type invented by a Bermudian, a tub lowered perpendicularly through the water so that it did not fill, and into which the diver could place his head for air. By this means, the divers, who were impressed Indians, could remain underwater for 45 minutes. That phrase identifying the divers as impressed Indians should give us pause. During this era, Europeans and European Americans were generally wary about water. Immersing oneself in water was generally thought to be dangerous as it invited disease. People rarely bathed, instead wrapping themselves in clean linen undergarments and changing them frequently. Swimming was a rare skill, and even most sailors and dock workers would be unlikely to survive a fall from a boat or a dock. The captain and crew were all English or English-American, so it's perhaps no surprise that they brought in someone who wasn't to do their diving for them. Many writers on this subject look at the reference in Mather's work to Indian divers and make the assumption that these were Abenakis, whom Phipps somehow knew from his time in Maine and enlisted for the voyage. However, the history of divers in the Caribbean points to a different and darker likelihood. In the article, Bells, Balls, and Bullion, Diving and Salvage in the Atlantic World, 1500 to 1800, John Ratcliffe says that the Spanish enslaved natives of the Venezuelan coast as pearl divers in the early 1500s. Their mortality rate was terrifyingly high, as pearl diving was one of the most dangerous employments of the era. Ratcliffe continues, Once the supply of native divers was exhausted, the Spanish began importing Lucayans from the Bahamas, who they believed to be the best divers of all. After they, too, perished from overwork, Negro slaves were employed with less success. Several sources say that Phipps picked up his divers in Jamaica. Some say that they were Lucayans, and one article claims that they may have been Africans. In either case, it's at least possible that they were enslaved. The period after King Philip's War was a high point in the slave trade between New England and the Caribbean, with defeated Native American tribes being sent to the sugar colonies en masse. During this period, it was unlikely for a white captain in the Indies to have taken on non-white free laborers. However, there's a later letter from John Narborough to Phipps, dated May 26, 1688. Sir William, three Indian divers I have sent home by Captain Hooper being bound from hence to New England, and likewise their share of silver according to the twentieth part, which is seven pounds sealed up in a bag with my one seal. It proves that at least three of the divers employed on this expedition were not only New England Indians, but were free and paid a share of the expedition's profits. The pirogue and the divers eventually found a reef that rose within a foot or two of the surface 
but fell off nearly vertically into the depths. After searching fruitlessly around its base, the men of the pirogue had just decided to give up and return to the tender empty-handed. Cotton Mather describes what happened then. Nevertheless, as they were upon the return, one of the men looking over the side of the periaga into the calm water, he spied a sea feather growing, as he judged, out of a rock. Whereupon, they had one of their Indians to dive and fetch this feather, that they might, however, carry home something with them and make at least as fair a triumph as Caligula's. The diver bringing up the feather brought therewithal a surprising story, that he perceived a number of great guns in the watery world where he had found his feather, the report of which great guns exceedingly astonished the whole company. Cannons on the rocks below meant a shipwreck, and the divers were sent below again. Soon, one brought up a solid silver casting known as a sow. Now they knew they had the right spot, and they marked it with a buoy before taking the Henry back to find Captain Phipps on the James and Mary. Nevertheless, Cotton Mather tells us how these old sailors couldn't resist the temptation of a practical joke. They went back under their captain, whom for some while they distressed with nothing but such bad news as they formerly thought they must have carried him. Nevertheless, they so slipped in the sow of silver on one side under the table, where they were now sitting with the captain, and hearing him express his resolutions to wait still patiently upon the providence of God under these disappointments, that when he should look on one side, he might see the odd thing before him. Can you imagine how exciting it would be, after getting yet another day's worth of bad news, to look under the table and see a solid silver bar staring back at you? You'd probably be happy enough not to strangle the sailors who pulled the prank on you in the first place. Seeing the silver, Phipps leapt to his feet and yelled, Thanks be to God, we are made. After risking everything, and after two unsuccessful voyages, William Phipps had finally found the motherlode. The identity of the ship wasn't known until much later, but the crew had found the wreck of the Nuestra Señora de la Concepción, a treasure ship that had gone down in a storm in 1641. Now it was time to strip the wreck for all they could. As Bernard Weisberger put it in 1956, all hands were put to work, and from mid-February to mid-April 1687, crews dove and raked and grappled and hoisted royal wealth into the holds, jewels, plate, coin, bars, ingots coming up and dripping baskets. Though the treasure was a secret for the time being, a broadside was later sent to Boston ahead of Phipps's return. It gives us a sense of what the recovery operations, which were called a wonderful instance which will fill our pockets with coin as well as our ears with astonishment, were like. According to the report, four divers were employed, as well as a diving bell, referred to as an engine. Their engine being a hollow vessel evenly depressed almost to the bottom, retains the air without filling water, whereby the party diving, when almost spent his breath, puts his head under the vessel, which replenishes him with breath again. Soon they had raised over 32 tons of silver, stores of gold pieces of eight, gold and silver plate, pearls, and precious stones. That same broadside relates how difficult it could be to find the treasures among the coral. Not the least plank or hull of the ship appeared, for the ship being broke to pieces on the rock, the parts were either driven away with the violence of the waves or consumed by the worms which in those seas will eat through the thickest plank in some years' time. And tis further remarkable that the silver had so long remained underwater as to petrify a congealed substance into white coral trees growing thereon, some with mighty spreading branches, 
even to a great height which the captain has testimonials to show, having presented his grace the duke with this curiosity. After the treasure room and most of the easy pickings had been brought to the surface, Phipps decided to leave some of the smaller ships to continue working the wreck, while he took the lion's share of the treasure back to England. Cotton Mather claimed the cargo was worth 300,000 pounds, but other sources say it was closer to 200,000. The Barnes article reconstructs the haul. Phipps's official log reports $33,702, half dollars pounds of coin by weight, and 20,649.5 of bullion, in the form of bars, sows, and doughboys, besides a considerable amount of broken wrought plate and four brass guns. They arrived back in England in June, and on June 28, 1687, King James II dubbed our humble captain Sir William Phipps. Alice Lounsbury's 1941 biography quotes the London Gazette, saying, Presented by the Duke of Albemarle, His Majesty received him very graciously, and bestowed on him the honor of knighthood in consideration of his loyalty and good service in a late expedition, having brought home a very considerable treasure which was taken out of the sea after it had been there forty-four years. After the king had his share of the treasure and the investors were all paid off, Sir William was entitled to about 12,000 pounds. In appreciation for the riches he brought in, the Duke of Albemarle presented him with a solid gold cup to take back to Boston as a gift to Mary. It's hard to try to translate this reward into modern currency, but it was enough to propel Phipps immediately into the moneyed class. Word of Sir William's jackpot and his title arrived in Boston long before the man himself did. On October 18, 1687, Samuel Sewell's diary notes the new title Mary Phipps now held. As came home from Roxbury, I met the governor's lady riding in her coach hitherward. The same day the governor's lady arrived, word came that Captain Phipps was knighted, so have two ladies in town. I'm sure it was nice to be a lady, but in practical terms, the immediate benefit was the improvement in Mary's credit score. The Lady Phipps quickly bought a new house, as told by Samuel Sewell, also in 1687. Friday, October 21st. I went to offer my Lady Phipps my house by Mr. Moody's and to congratulate her preferment. As to the former, she had bought Sam Wakefield's house and ground last night for £350. I gave her a gazette that related her husband's knighthood which she had not seen before, and wished the success might not hinder her a passage to a greater and better estate. Gave me a good cup of beer and thanked me for my visit. While his wife was getting used to her new social prominence and settling into a new home, Sir William was embarking on one more adventure. That September, Phipps went back to the wreck on a voyage commanded by Admiral Lord Narborough. Unfortunately, the secret was out. When they arrived, there were eight large ships and almost 30 smaller vessels working the wreck. The English fleet was able to drive the scavengers away, but it was quickly clear that this venture would be a bust. In May of 1688, Phipps threw in the towel and decided to sail for Boston for the first time in over four years. He arrived in June, opening a new chapter of his life. From this point forward, Sir William Phipps would no longer be a treasure hunter and adventurer. The poor shepherd from the despicable plantation grew up to have audiences with three kings and created the continent's greatest fortune almost out of thin air. He would become a politician, 
helping increase Mather and other powerful Puritans overturned the Andros administration. He would become a general, leading an ambitious and eventually disastrous attack on the French in Quebec. And he would become the savior of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and its first royal governor under the charter of William and Mary, in which he would preside over the Salem witch trials. But those are different stories for a different show. To learn more about William Phipps and his adventures in search of treasure, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 123. We'll have links to the sources we used in researching this episode, including Cotton Mather's Magnolia Christi Americana and the Diary of Samuel Sewell. We'll have the articles we referenced from Viola Barnes and Charles Carricker, as well as 1847 and 1941 biographies of William Phipps. Plus, we'll have links to articles about searching for underwater treasure using divers and diving bells. And, of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and the American Revolution podcast, this week's Boston Book Club pick. We also want to mention two upcoming appearances. We'll be at History Camp Boston next Saturday, March 16th. History Camp is a fun event where you can learn a lot of great history from top historians in a single day. You don't have to be an academic or a professional historian. You don't have to have any memberships or credentials. All you need is a ticket and a love of history. Last time I checked, there were still a handful of tickets left, so I hope we'll see you there. Also, Nikki and I will be giving a brief talk at the main branch of the Boston Public Library on Friday, March 29th at 7.30 p.m. It's part of a program marking the 150th anniversary of the Grand Peace Jubilee, held in Copley Square in 1869. You can get more details about the Jubilee in episode 102, but in short, it was a giant musical extravaganza celebrating the end of the Civil War. The anniversary event is going to feature some of the same music as performed at the original, as interpreted by a brass band from the New England Conservatory of Music. We'll give the historic context, Boston's poet laureate Portia Eliawola will give a reading, and the keynote address will be delivered by Theodore C. Landsmark. Because the event's being held at the library after hours, advanced registration is required. You can go to associatesbpl.org slash pierce, and we'll have a link in this week's show notes as well. If you want to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the contact us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're in all your favorite podcasting apps, including Google Podcasts and Google Play Music, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, and many more. Stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History Podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts is still the most popular podcast app. If you subscribe on Apple, please consider rating and reviewing us. It helps us show up higher in the podcast rankings where people can find us more easily. If you write us a review, Drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of our appreciation. Or just tell a friend about us. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help new listeners discover the show. That's all for now. 
We'll be back next time with stories of Boston's weird neighborhood history. 